0: All right, we're here today with the amazing Bubble Man, the globetrotting bubble artist, Louis Pearl. Louis, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. First off, I guess we'll just ask, like, where, where'd you grow up? I grew up right over there across the bay, San Francisco. Right ac- over here in the... Across the bay and a little north,
1: I guess, yeah. Over in the Richmond district in the fog. Was that near the, the Chinatown part of Richmond, or...? Well, let's put it this way. When I went to high school, it was about 50% Chinese. 50% Chinese? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So there's, it's new Chinatown. Like, it's not actual Chinatown, but the
0: Chinese uh, people from Chinatown got wealthier and moved out into the Richmond district. Were they, they like, first-generation Chinese, or were they they second-generation, kind of a mix? Well, all the kids were probably
1: born in the States. And I would imagine their parents came from China. Like when I was in elementary school, my best friend for a while, Kyler G, his parents were Chinese. They had a cleaners, and he was born here. He and his brother, and uh, he was he was a really good artist, and he uh, we became really good friends. And sometimes after school, I'd go back home with him, not not to the house, to the cleaners. Because his parents were at the cleaners. And, like, one time I went behind the counter. I think, you know, I was like 11 years old or something. And there was a cardboard box making a bunch of noise. And I said, what's in there? You know, and he opened it up and there were, like, four pigeons. And he said, that's dinner.
0: It, like, pigeons? like the- Yeah, yeah, pigeons, like you see uh, all over the place, yeah. <laughs> and did they actually eat it that night or was it uh Well, I imagine, I don't know,
1: I wasn't invited. I never was invited to their house for dinner or anything. I did go in their house and it was, there were toys everywhere. You could not walk through that house. It was just
0: packed with plastic toys. I was just just thinking maybe he was pulling your leg and they were laughing about it that night. No, I mean, you know, why else would they have pigeons in a box
1: just for fun? Maybe they were magicians (laughs) or something. It's like, watch me pull a pigeon out of that. (laughs) I'm not labeling. (laughs) It's funny though, the year before I got to the high school. So let's see, I graduated in 75. So it was 71. There was a riot at the high school and it was the Chinese against the blacks and the whites, which is like, that doesn't happen elsewhere in this country, you know, where the blacks and the whites are on the same side. Was
0: there an outcome to the riot, or was it a?
1: I don't know. I don't. I mean, I wasn't there. It was the year before I got there, but there had been a shooting. Somebody did a drive-by that morning and shot someone before school,
0: and that turned ended up becoming like a big, huge fight. What? Uh, what did your parents do? Were, were you with family, or did you? Yeah, I was the fourth of four children, the youngest of four. Uh, my oldest brother was thirteen years
1: older than me, and my closest sibling was five years older than me. And uh, my parents, my dad was a surgeon, general surgery, everything but hearts and brains, I think. So he'd come home, we'd all have dinner together and he'd talk about like body parts and different operations that he did that day. And it, it was all these words I didn't understand. And was thinking back, it's pretty damn weird, you know, to be hearing about surgery while you're eating dinner and
0: uh and my mom was a housewife and a mom she raised four kids you know that was pretty normal back then so you'd come home your mom's making meatloaf and your dad's talking about dissecting like intestines and yeah meat. stomach <laughs> <laughs> yeah That's we
1: wild. we ate a lot of meat see so, yeah, like if my dad had to work you know he was he was gone a lot because he he worked hard he he was gone when i got up in the morning out in the hospital
0: doing rounds and and, uh, you know, sometimes he was late coming home, and then we'd have TV dinners. Because he's a surgeon. He worked a lot of hours, right? I mean, it was a... Yeah,
1: yeah on weekends, too. He, he had to check on his patients every day. So uh, he, was, he was really into work. That was his... He loved it, you know? I mean, he, he really loved it, and he pushed me to be a, a surgeon, too. That's, you know... I mean, when I was a kid, people say, what are you going to be when you grow up? I'm going to be a doctor. There was no doubt
0: about it. You know, that's what he told me I was going to be, and... Did you ever ever give it a shot or try it out later in life? Well, my high school,
1: Washington High School, they had an experimental program that was developed at University of California uh, for my last two years of high school. Uh, It was called BioMed, and it was for students who wanted to go into the medical profession in some way as a technician or a nurse or a doctor, and they took uh chemistry biology social studies and mathematics so four periods a day we were with the same group of kids and we were all in this experimental program and you know we could all tell that it it was put together maybe a little too quickly because a lot of the stuff didn't make a lot of sense and seemed like the teachers were trying to figure out what they were doing and but they had a budget and they brought in a lot of like faux uh lab technician stuff. We had these little machines that could read colorimeters and things and we had to do like stool samples with this like simulated
0: stool <laughs> and uh still so wasn't shit.
1: It was simulated shit, yes. And the morning we the it's funny, the morning I was kind of a wrecker in high school and uh I had a bunch of friends who were older than me and we'd kind of get high and drink and stuff at night. And one morning I came to school and I was hung over and I was tired. And, um, and it was the day that we played around with the simulated shit. And I, all of a sudden I just left class. And I felt really sick. And I just like, I left class and, uh, and there was another kid there, Ed Guerra. He, he, uh, he was also cutting class, and we started walking together. And he was telling me all about his problems with his girlfriend. And then I, I just got, was like, Ed, hold off a second. I turned and I, I got really sick, you know. And I've never seen this except in the movies. I had one of those, what, a vomit like that, just shot out like six feet. Projectile. Projectile vomit. vomit. Yeah. <laughs> Things like Ed's going, you know, like, uh, you know, oh yeah, my girlfriend, she's dumping me. And I'm like, hold on, <laughs> Woo
0: <laughs> That story is so interesting because, like, you know, I came from outside the Bay Area and I, I've spent like 10 years here and I've always been trying to understand why things are so inventive here. And it's, and even sounds like at that point in time, it was also like very progressive in the school, you know, lesson planning. And oh God, it was very progressive. Yeah. You know, there's just so many educated
1: people here, and there's like all these top universities. And so the population is, you know, what's attracted here is really well-educated liberal people. And uh, yeah, so the city, I mean, when I grew up in San Francisco, there was hippies everywhere, and there were peace marches, anti-war marches, you know, and it was very
0: left-wing kind of place you know were were you around for the hippies that were in the Panhandle, you know, like the Janis Joplin era, or was that a little bit?
1: um, I was still a little young for it, and I just saw all these hippies, and you know they looked weird. they had long hair and weird clothes and beards and uh but i I had to do a report uh for school in about sixty seven or sixty eight and so I decided, okay, I'm gonna do a report on the hippies and my dad one of his friends was a political editor for the san francisco examiner which was a serious paper back then and uh so he got me a lot of photographs so i had all these kind of uh, newspaper photographs like actual prints of all these kind of long-haired weird people in the Haight ashbury doing stuff and i had a little movie camera little super 8 and my mom would drive around and i'd take movies of hippies and stuff and so i i I, my thesis for the whole film the whole project was that no these hippies they're just people and they're not like all the same they're you know they're individual people who are creative people and i kind
0: of ended up feeling like they they were cool do you remember anything specifically that made you have that change of perspective when people were saying oh these hippies are are no good, they're weird. And then you kind of said, oh. There wasn't any one thing.
1: It just was the fact that I really was looking at them rather than just generalizing and, you know, listening to my parents, oh, they all smoke dope. Uh, you know, they're all like this and they're all like that. And, uh, no, I, 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 I stopped and really paid attention and saw that, no, these are all just interesting people. The, the most exciting part of the movie for me at the
0: end was that I got two dogs having sex. They were hippies too. <laughs> okay. Would you describe that period of your childhood as overall pretty positive or normal, or was it like a turbulent time when you were, you know, high school or middle school?
1: Um, it, well, it was definitely a turbulent time. The 60s the, with the Vietnam War, there were like all these peace marches. Like, You know, all the, the, I was too young, but my sister would come home with black armband on. They were all marching around with armbands. And, uh, yeah, I mean, there was the Black Panthers. There was the the Chicago riots during the the Democratic convention. I mean, it was crazy. We'd see like war on the news every night. We'd see shooting and people dying, bombs exploding, exploding, you know, I mean, it was insane. And, uh, and, you know, I mean, as a kid it was disheartening to be in, you know, one of the first generations that learned that the president of the United States was not someone you could trust, you know, that the, the, and the police were not your friends and that everything I'd been taught was, was bullshit. And that, you know, we're living in a police state and, and, you know, the whole civil rights thing was, was happening. I mean, that was just what was normal
0: when I was that, you know, a little kid. Wow. So like at the age of nine, you're consumed around this, you know, sort of counterculture to the establishment that was, you know, choosing to go in the direction of war and uh, draft and things like that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And we were definitely in the, in, in the opposition to that. Like not my parents so much. Like my mom, you know, wasn't political, and we didn't talk about that stuff at all. So, but you could just see it. It was, it was in, it was everywhere. And so my sister, she would march and everything, but she wasn't political. It's just what, what was cool.
0: Because I, I guess arguably San Francisco and Berkeley and the Bay Area was kind of at the epicenter of this yeah. movement, right? Oh God, yeah. Like Berkeley, the the whole. Mario
1: Savio and the whole student revolution and the sit-ins and, you know, the students were trying to, uh, encourage free speech and they didn't want the army recruiters on campus. And, uh, you know, I mean like, but, but our family, we didn't, we weren't political in that way, you know, and my parents were pretty conservative, you know, like they were Democrats, but they were conservative socially and uh, fiscally and stuff. And so like my older brother, he's 13 years older than me. So uh, in this time, say, 66, uh, I was nine. He was 22. So he was finishing at Berkeley. And there, you know, there was so much news about the University of California, because that was like the, the beginning of the whole student protest movement. And they showed my brother coming out of the student union and behind him he was just going in there to do something, you know, to do with like classes and things. But behind him was all these protesters and the, the main guy, Mario Savio, was right behind my brother. He just happened to be there and he was on the news, but he didn't. He was just a frat boy and, you know, didn't care about politics at all. But he went on to do what he was supposed to do. He became a surgeon and became the partner of my father.
0: So brother took father's footsteps in yeah. some ways.
1: Okay. Yeah, it's interesting because he, when he was born, my parents were, were poor. They had nothing. My dad was working as an intern for $15 a month. And my mom was a secretary supporting him. And, you know, they were
0: like... S- supporting your father. Yeah.
1: Yeah, because he was, you know, putting in 16 hours a day at the hospital getting paid, what was it, 15 or $50 a month or something. You know, I mean, that's... They don't make anything. And it might be different now. I don't know, but it wasn't. It wasn't easy for them, you know. And he'd been in World War II, and he'd been a doctor in the Philippines, and so he he
0: he learned surgery the hard way, like sewing up soldiers every day, like that TV show Mash, you know. Did he do a lot of like amputations in the field and things like that, or?
1: One time, I remember somebody said the word "basket case" about somebody. Oh yeah, he's a real basket case. And my father stopped him and said, "Hey, you know." Be careful when you say stuff like that, because a basket case meant somebody who had lost both their legs, and they
0: had to carry him around in a basket. Or is, is really ugly. Was your father, um, was he a medic, or was he a... He was a full-on surgeon. It's full-on surgeon. Yeah, oh, yeah,
1: a... so he'd gone to medical school, and then he'd gone in the army, and it just turned out that he got out of medical school right when World War II was happening. Wow. And they shipped him off to uh, to the Philippines, and then to Okinawa. And he would have been in the first, the first medical group to invade Japan if they hadn't dropped the bomb. So that means, you know, there's a good chance if they hadn't dropped that bomb, I wouldn't be here today. Wow, that's, <laughs> that's wild. <laughs> but my older brother was born while he was away. You know, he didn't see his first kid for two years.
0: Yeah, I mean, he did what he had to do. That's uh, That's gotta be challenging on the yeah. on the home front for sure. So he, in a way, he had his hands in, like, the carnage of the war, right? He would see... Literally, he had his hands, you know, wrist deep in the carnage. Did you see any of that kind of reflected when you were growing up and he was back, or was he kind of... Oh, God, no. I mean, I was I was born in 57, so the war
1: ended in, what, 46 or something? You know, I mean, he it was a whole different world by then. It was the 50s, and there was prosperity, and, you know, he was a... a hot shot surgeon in San Francisco his own practice by the time I came around they had money he was a golfer he joined the country club and now it makes sense now I know uh, why you like golf yeah yeah so on the weekends uh, we drive up to the Marin Golf and Country Club in uh, near Novato in a place called Ignacio California and uh, you know I get a golf lesson or hang out by the pool. It was all very conservative and, and, you know, clubby. I never fit
0: in. I never felt like I fit in
1: to the, any of that stuff, but there I was.
0: Was that always from the beginning, or did it, was it? I've, I've never been... felt like I fitted in. don't <laughs> oh, <laughs> think you fit in now, man. Fat in.
1: <laughs> in the 60s, my dad and a bunch of doctors they invested in a and one of the first computer companies it was called data tech and they bought a huge amount of shares of data tech stock at like 50 cents a share this whole group of doctors and it didn't do anything for years it didn't do anything and then uh, they all they all wanted to get out my father kept saying no it's gonna work just stick with it and then eventually it started shooting up, you know, and they all made a bunch of money and they like sold and then it would go down and they'd buy and, and, uh, he, he, he made a bunch of money on that thing and they all thanked him and they bought him a, a, one of those golf carts
0: and he bought a house up at this country club. Wow. So he was, he was almost involved in like the original startup scene in the Bay Area. Yeah. In a way. Yeah.
1: His brother was a was a, a a nuclear physicist at GE, down in San Jose, so his brother was kind of he he kind of was close to what was happening down there, and I think his brother's the one that got them involved in the
0: of the times that was kind of like the Apple or the Google or the Facebook, right? GE and I guess later on Xerox that was you know in its yeah. time was very IBM HP, so they kind of had their hands in the the cutting edge of the yeah technology scene. Yeah, at least they're money. What do you remember being, like, some of your, your biggest influences? Did you listen to a lot of music, or did you...? I mean, the music was
1: changing so much. Like, I remember 65, like, I still... My dad, he liked Tchaikovsky, and my parents, they like show tunes. So, you know, I grew up hearing that stuff. And then, what was it, 64, 65, I think? You know, we used to watch the Ed Sullivan show every Sunday. Sometimes we'd be at my grandparents, uh, you know, or be at our house. But, you know, the, everybody watched Ed Sullivan every Sunday. That's what we did. And, uh, and then, you know, it was like, very exciting. We, the Beatles are going to be on, you know. So the whole family sat around and we watched the Beatles and it was, it changed everything. And so then everybody started growing their hair and, and you know, all my friends were getting Beatles records and there was records, like record shops opened up. And, you know, and my dad outlawed Beatles records, no Beatles records allowed in the house. You know, we couldn't have them. And so, but we did have a record player and he kind of finally backed down, you know? And I remember like, I still liked classical music when I was a little kid, but when I was like six or so, let's see, Beatles are 65. So maybe I was more like 10, I don't know. I just said, okay, I'm going to try this, this rock and roll, you know, and we had all these 45s, little 45 RPM discs. And so I just sat there as a little kid and I said, okay, I'm going to listen to this stuff and I put on a stack of them, you know, cause you, they had a little thing and you'd stack them up and one would play and then the needle would lift and the arm would move and the next one would drop on top and it goes, and then it would play the next one. And I listened to like six songs and then I said, okay, I like this music. And I learned, you know, you can train yourself to like a different form of art. You know, you just have to really actually listen to it instead of, like, hear it and go, oh, I don't like that. You know, just stop and take your mind out of the, the situation and actually listen to what it is. And uh, I trained myself to like rock music. And then, you know, the whole 60s just took off. And, uh, I mean, we were... We were ground zero. San Francisco was the center of the whole new music scene, you know, and uh, we also had a cousin who was in the record business and he, I didn't know what he did, but it, now I do. He was a—he was in sales for A&M Records, uh, which was founded by Herb Alpert, the famous trumpet player. And uh, so he would send out uh, singles to radio stations all around the country, and he put us on the list. So every month we'd get a package in the mail with like fifty forty fives. It's like, ooh, what's this? And we we'd listen to all this music. So that was kind of
0: cool. Did you feel, at least in San Francisco, like you know the Beatles and uh, I don't know what your taste of music like you know CCR, Joplin, or you know was that mainstream, or was it still kind of like a counterculture to I liked Motown,
1: you know, I, I liked the black music and I mean, yeah, you know, Beatles were everywhere and, and the radio, you know, the radio went from playing really middle of the road bullshit to what, you know, pop music became, which was things like the Beatles and the Stones and Bob Dylan and things like that. And, but I, you know, they played a lot of Motown and it, I mean, it was great. And these people were on TV all the time with all their dance steps and, and the songs were, were very listenable you know for a little kid and and so first record I bought was by the four tops I was like I I remember it's like wow this is my very first record that I bought and um and there were but you could listen to the radio this was top 40 radio days and it was this like kind of crazy DJs that had a lot of charisma and personality and you got to know the DJs and you uh, they had a lot of contests, you know, so you'd be listening to the radio and it's like the first person that calls and identifies this song and they'd play like three seconds of a song, you know. You'd win like $100 or you'd win something, you know, and so like we we listened to the radio a lot and tried to win these contests. They got you. They got you at those contests. Oh, it worked. Yeah, yeah. And also San Francisco was the first place that had uh, an independent kind of in quotes underground radio fm radio station because everybody listened to am there was kfrc and kya and kdia that was the
0: black station when did this how do i put it like how did, when did this weird hippie you know crazy prankster style culture did it follow or was it all just kind of happening at the it same it all time? happened at the same time
1: you okay. know like uh there was also you know part of that prankster Hippie culture was that people were smoking weed, you know, which up till then it was like, you know, it wasn't white people didn't smoke weed. That was like, you know, uh, black people did it musicians and stuff. And, uh, but all of a sudden it was everywhere, you know? And, and so it was like my sister, when I was 12 years old, my sister, my parent, we were staying up in Marin at the house on the golf course. And my parents were away and my sister who was 17 thought it would be funny to get her little 12 year old brother stoned. So we, she took a cigarette and she emptied all the tobacco out and she stuffed it with pot and we went out on the golf course and, and we smoked this joint and I got a little bit high, nothing really, but you know, it was, it's okay. Didn't, didn't change me that much. But, uh, a week later we were home and my parents were gone and then we smoked it again and I got so incredibly stoned and I was only 12. And, uh, you know, I remember I was my, I was lying on the couch. We were watching TV and, and I started, my head started to go into the couch. And I'm like, my head's going into the couch. (laughs) And I was just laughing so hard, you know, I couldn't stop laughing. And, uh, my sister, she was freaking out about something. And she's, she was like calling the police for some reason. And she was, she was like saying, I can't believe I'm so stoned and I'm calling the police and, uh, she didn't get the police and she got over whatever it was, whatever paranoia it was. And I was still laughing on the couch. And so, uh, I liked weed and, and I wasn't the only one, the whole place, you know, my, my parents weren't touching it, but a lot of people's parents were. It was everywhere and it wasn't like what they have now you know i mean you would buy a a lid which is basically an ounce of this bag they called it four fingers it was a a baggie about four fingers of this mexican weed and you know it wasn't top you know tops or anything it was just leaf with lots of stems and seeds and stuff and you'd roll up a joint and we all got really good at rolling joints And, you know, it would have all these seeds in it and, you know, smoking and go, it would snap and pop and stuff would go flying. And, uh, but we got high, you know, we, we, we definitely, yeah, yeah, we were, we were total potheads. You know, the whole, every kid on the block, by the time we were 14, we were smoking weed every night. (laughs) Uh, and I did, you know, like my brother, he would, he kind of he, he was about my middle brother, not the doctor, but the next brother, he was a really good basketball player. He was in the sports and all the basketball, almost all the basketball players on the team. And when he went to high school were black. And so he turned into a, a black dude, you know, and it, and they had their whole culture going back then, you know, with, uh, uh, you know, like they all wore leather he had like leather with giant uh lapels and things you know and those platform shoes my brother was like a pimp he had like full leather suits and he had eight or nine pairs of platform shoes and a big broad hat and he drove in a camaro and you know he had you know like his wide brim hat i don't know if you watch superfly the movie you know that, that was the time and they they all dressed like that and i think he actually was a pimp How did did you get that impression? Well, just the way he dressed and everything. And you'd go to his house and he had like a round bed with a mirror over the bed and all these, like, those velvet paintings of naked women on the walls. And, you know, he was dealing weed. And, like, he also was dealing other drugs. I mean, I don't know, I don't know what. Uh, And, uh, and then he got, he got, like, in some big fight or something, I don't know what happened. He was very secretive. I never did find out most of the stuff he was up to.
0: One could understand why if he's, uh, he's got a family on one end of the spectrum and he's dabbling in uh, a lot of these different things.
1: Yeah, well, we realized later that he probably had a learning disability, which they didn't really acknowledge back then. He He could barely read. He was very smart, but he, he was not academically smart. And, you know, he managed somehow to get into University of California. And he had, got a degree. Uh, but he had to cheat his way through the whole thing, you know. And he, he had this one story about how he climbed up the wall into the academic office, you know, and changed his grades and stuff. Really? Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, he was, he was brilliant at, at how to game the system.
0: How did you get into Bubbles, you know? Oh, wow. Do you remember your first?
1: I went to, uh, I got out of high school and I I enrolled in UC San Diego. And so I moved down to San Diego and I just lived in the dorms. And my original dorm roommate, Josh, uh, he gave up after like two months. He said, no, this is not for me. I'm going back to San Francisco. And uh, so I had a dorm room to myself and UCSD had a exchange program with Dartmouth College. And so these kind of Ivy League guys we come over, and women would come over. And so my, I got a new roommate in the second quarter. I got a new roommate. Uh, his name was Dirt. Uh, his name was actually Steve, but he and his best friend at Dartmouth was also Steve. So one was Dirt and one was shit. And so my roommate was Dirt and uh he was they were cool these they were just partying so you know we did a lot of drinking and a lot of smoking and we took a bunch of mushrooms and you know we were kids away from home at the beginning you know being 18 years old and we uh uh and i I really liked him and all his friends from dartmouth and then my next roommate was also from dartmouth and so a couple years later when i was a junior, I did the exchange and I went I went back there and my roommate had this box of bubble blowers and so I you know I was like in the room and you know we settled in and he had this box it was on my side of the room I said what is this thing what are these little horns in here and he said oh yeah I invented that they they make bubbles and so uh, you know a couple days later I said, "Well, show me how these things work you know and he started blowing this really big bubble and we were sitting around smoking at the time we we smoked cigarettes and weed you know it was a smoker at the time and so he blew this basketball size bubble and then he put some smoke in it and I was captivated you know I mean it it was we were just kind of partying and getting high and it's like wow look at that you know and started playing with it and moving around like waving our hands at it and under it and uh, we pushed it out the door into the hall and then we started having contests seeing how far we could drive a bubble and then we started taking videos we started inventing some games like trying to get the bubble to go each over each other's head and we go outside and it was fall so it was cool outside and we were blowing these bubbles with the warm air from our lungs so they went up and we had these really bright flashlights we were pointing at the bubbles and they they looked like ufos you know these huge bubbles with these lights reflecting on them and the trees all around and it it was beautiful and I loved them. So when, uh, when I was after my three months, it was time to leave Dartmouth. I said, Hey, can I, can I buy some of these? And he said, Oh no, here, just take a hundred. So I took a hundred and I drove back to the West coast and that's how I kind of started
0: loving bubbles. You drove all the whole way from Dartmouth to Yeah,
1: yeah, I had a little Toyota truck and I had driven out there in the summer, taking like a month and a half and I had all kinds of adventures driving across the country as a like a twenty one year old and uh I had the I had the car there and then I drove back. That's a long distance, a lot of people on that on that journey. Yeah. So I met Johnny Paycheck on that journey.
0: Met Johnny Paycheck on yeah, that journey. Yeah, you ever heard of Johnny I Paycheck? Have. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. country wow. singer, take yeah. this
1: job and shove it.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah, Still popular. my friend, Chris Langan, high school buddy, uh, also a sea scout friend of mine. I was in the sea scouts. Uh, he had fallen in love with a, a girl who went to, she was from Hawaii, but she went to, uh, Columbia, Missouri to go to a famous girls college. I forget what it's called women's college. And, uh, so her group of women had gone skiing in Jackson hole, Wyoming, where Chris was on the ski patrol and she met chris and they kind of fell in love and so he ended up going uh to columbia missouri so i stopped there on my trip and uh we got a job doing helping with roofing and it was really hard work and it was hot and uh and it was no fun but you know we got some money and then we went out at night to a bar it was it was the bar at the local holiday inn and and johnny paycheck was in there Johnny Patrick was at the Holiday Inn. He was at the bar at the Holiday Inn. He'd been rained out at the, at the Missouri Country Fair, and so he was sitting around the bar with his guitar, and he uh, he you know he bought us what was he drinking peppermint schnapps. He bought us a bunch of peppermint schnapps, and then he he told us he wanted cocaine. He said, "I got to get some cocaine. Can you guys get me some cocaine?" And we said, "Okay, we'll go find you cocaine." <laughs> and we went, we went through all the town. We ended up at a. At a frat house and we saw there was a party going on at this frat house and we thought hey let's go in here and uh you know see what's happening and and like we we were san francisco hippie guys and uh and these were all like frat boys from missouri you know with short hair and uh you know beef fed Missouri boys you, and, didn't, you and didn't have a crew cut did you no 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 we had long hair and they and we walked in they get these guys like are surrounded said who are these girls and we were like come on we're just here for a party and, and they were like really mean we ended up like like running out of there <laughs> and we went back to the holiday inn and we got
0: all the toilet paper and ended up like toilet papering their their frat house Johnny Paycheck help you TP the the frat house no, we
1: never got the cocaine and Johnny Paycheck was gone by the time we got back. Uh but
0: you know, we did hang out with him for a couple hours and he sang a bunch of songs and Yeah, it was cool. What an adventure. Well, wow, so you you got back to school, uh now you've got like a hundred of these uh bubble trumpets?
1: Yeah. Okay, so I got back to school, I finished school, uh, and I got my degree in English literature and I didn't I didn't know what to do with my life. I was completely lost in life no no purpose no school no desire to go back to school uh no girlfriend uh i was i was lost and i didn't know what to do and i went back and i was staying at my parents house which was really weird after five years away uh and i pretty depressed and um my brother this was uh When was this? This was 1980, right about 1980. And, uh, what was going on musically in popular culture back then, uh, the disco scene had happened. And, uh, that, uh, John Travolta movie, Saturday Night Fever had turned everybody into loving disco and it was the whole Bee Gees thing. And then John Travolta's next movie was a cowboy movie that became the next big fad. Like, uh, disco went out, and country got, came in, and bars opened up all over the country with mechanical bulls and a whole Western theme. And so my brother, by then, he owned a bar in San Francisco. Uh, it was a fern bar, kind of like, uh, I don't know. There was a thing then where they were had bars with big plate glass windows and, and gold leaf lettering and light coming in and ferns hanging. And it was a thing in the 70s to get women come into bars, they weren't, they stopped being like dark, smoky places and started being light places. So my brother owned this bar and it was successful. And so he wanted to expand and he opened up a cowboy bar. And so my brother backed my brother, my father backed him, gave him some money on the condition that he hire me to help build this bar. So I was living at my parents' house and I was going over to Hayward to help in this bar every day. And there was lots of drinking and drugging going on. And, uh, it was, it was just a weird time because I didn't know what to do. Um, and then we got the bar built and it opened up and, uh, the hell's Angels showed up on the first night and the, the head hell's angel, his name was foo came in and he, the, my brother's partner wouldn't let him in, wearing his Hells Angels colors. He said, you have to take off the colors. He
0: told the Hells Angels no.
1: He Told the Hells Angels, because there was a thing, if the Hells Angels had their colors on and then there was a competing uh, motorcycle gang, you know, there would be a huge fight. He said, you can come in, you just have to take off the colors. But Fu would have none of it. Fu like punched him in the mouth, knocked out his two front
0: teeth. And uh, that was opening night of the bar. Knocked out his teeth. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lesson. Did he go in and have drinks after? Yeah, or? they went
1: in. They had drinks. There wasn't that was the end of the fighting, and uh, the bar was wildly successful for about nine months. And they got David Crosby played there, and uh, a bunch of other people played there. And uh, but then the the fad wore off, and you know everybody realized well, drinks are really expensive at this bar, and so it, it crashed and burned. But by that time. Uh, I wasn't working there anymore. And my cousin, uh, was sailing around the world and invited me to go to Panama, Panama, and joined him sailing to the Galapagos. So I was like, sure. I don't know what the hell I'm doing in my life. I want to get out of here. Sailing to the Galapagos sounds pretty good. So I flew to Panama and I did this whole trip, you know, and, uh, Took four days to get from Panama to the Galapagos and we spent about ten days traveling around. It was
0: unbelievable. And this is before the internet too. You had to figure out what to do when you landed in Panama, right? There was no researching ahead of time.
1: Uh well, I mean I had my cousin was, you know, I knew where he was, I knew the address, so I got to the airport and I went got in a taxi and they took me to the to the canal zone. He was he was staying in a in a yacht harbor in the US army post because we we ran the canal back then and so there was a so like we i landed i landed at the airport and the taxi ride was like through jungles and all kinds of ghettos and weird weird places and then you came to the canal zone post and it was like little american houses with white picket fences and churches and shops and it was like an american neighborhood right there in panama and it was all very strange. It sounds like the Twilight Zone. It's like a very weird dichotomy. Yeah, I mean, it's still like that, I'm sure, because the the U.S. military builds its bases around the world. Right. And they bring Americans over, and they build an American neighborhood with American schools and American flags and churches and whatever, you know. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so we sailed to Galapagos, and we... We took a little tour around the Galapagos and uh, saw, I had a camera and I was just snapping away. And we had a bag of Panama Red and I was like
0: staying pretty stoned the whole time. So you spent quite a while at sea together then going from the mainland to Yeah, it was the four days
1: to the Galapagos. And then we were in the Galapagos for like 10 days and we met a bunch of people who lived there. Turned out a, a lot of Dutch people moved there to escape Hitler in the forties and they'd stayed and they'd had ranches and they had children and their children, were they still there, you know? And, uh, and there was some, it's like when we arrived in our boat, they didn't allow, they didn't allow people to cruise on boats there. You had to leave within 48 hours. So not many people came. and we didn't know that, or at least if I didn't know it. And so when we got there, uh, with the boat, like, became a magnet for all these people who were hungry for news from the outside world. There was no internet, sure, you know, and sure. there, there wasn't much connection. We were in the middle of nowhere, literally. And um, so I went for a swim. I, I was like, I went for a swim, and I actually got hit by a boat. And I came back to our boat, and there was a party going on. You got hit by a boat. I was swimming. <laughs> And I looked up and I saw a boat in the distance and you know, when you're swimming, uh, you don't look forward that much. You look you're looking down and to the side and uh and I saw well this boats far away and I kept swimming and I looked up and the boat was like right in front of me. Wow. And I dove down but it hit me in the head and and then I thought, Oh shit, I'm gonna get hit by the propeller. This was a pretty big boat So I dove even further down under the boat and watched it go over me and and then Turned out it was the mail boat that would go twice a week back and forth to uh, Ecuador.
0: I love how you just like skipped over almost becoming chop suey by the by the mailman <laughs> and had <laughs> jumped into the party <laughs> afterwards.
1: Yeah, I mean, I got back to the boat and there was like all these people and we had all this whiskey because one of the people on the boat from Panama was this radio operator who had a friend in the Galapagos and he... he Hired Roger to bring him and like six cases of Jack Daniels to his friend who lived in the Galapagos. And so, like, whiskey bottles are being passed around and they were listening to all our cassettes. They hadn't heard any new music in a long time. And it's like, what magazines, what books do you have? And, uh, and then, you uh, know, I was just sitting there and I touched my head and there was like all liquid. And it turned out I had a, a huge gash in my head. And, um, But it took like three hours before it opened up. From the boat. From being hit by the boat. Yeah. And so by the time I realized that I was, I needed stitches, there was this party going on, it was nighttime. And, uh, so we put a bunch of coffee on my wound because somebody said, oh, coffee will stop the bleeding. Coffee on the wound. Why do they say coffee? I guess coffee constricts your blood vessels. I guess that's
0: true. Yeah, I never thought about that. uh... I never
1: thought about it either, but you know, when you're, when you're in the middle of a harbor in the middle of nowhere, you know, there's not like you can rush to the emergency room, but actually there was an emergency room and we did eventually go there and I got some stitches and they allowed us to stay in the Galapagos because usually you have to leave in two days. But because I got hit, uh, and I might've had a concussion, they said, okay, you can stay for like eight more days so we weren't allowed to sail our boat around the galapagos because it's a national park you yep. have to go with a guide so we got on this little little motor boat it was like the boat from gilligan's island and there were like six tourists and two crew and we putted around all the islands and it was 20 bucks a day and uh, and it was great what Stamped an adventure so
0: coffee saved your life and <laughs> <Yeah>. got <laughs> and to stay on the, still addicted to coffee yes. to this day well you you owe it your life i
1: guess yeah well i don't i don't know if it worked or not but then we sailed 28 days to la from there that was the real adventure being at sea for 28 days was fantastic no land wow it was and i by the end i never wanted to see land again i was it was just the world was liquid land hurts you fall on land it hurts you know, and it's like just being on the water, like, constantly in motion, all, you know, 24 hours a day, you're in motion. And in the middle of the night, I would steer, you know, I'd take off the autopilot and I'd hold the wheel and you could just feel the boat. And it, it's a real feel like steering a boat like that. And it'd be like, I would just pick a star and I'd be like middle of the night, everybody else asleep. And I'd be in the middle of the ocean, sailing this boat. Right, right at the start, and there was like the stars were incredible. There was always dolphins swimming on our bow, so you could go up in the bow and, uh, you know, I put the autopilot back on and go just, kind of listen to the dolphins. They were like surfing on our our wake and and singing the whole time, and you could see them because there were all those uh, uh, phosphorescent uh, micro creatures, you know, that light up. That's right any heat lights them up, so any movement lights them up. So the the boat lit them up and the dolphins lit them up. So you'd see the outline in in fluorescent green of these dolphins, and you'd hear them. It was magical. And, and, you know, after 28 days, we landed. And I almost got seasick when I got on land because I wasn't moving anymore. You know, my body was so used to constant motion. When you get off, it's this strange
0: feeling of not moving. You know, it's like... The land you're standing on isn't moving. It's like you were in space, right? You just came back and you had kinda, to get your uh, your land legs back. It is kind of like that. Yeah. You never went crazy being away from. Well, I guess you had your brother.
1: Yeah. The first few days, I didn't like it. It was like, oh, God, you know, we're all stuck on this boat, you know, and you really, if you don't, if you're not happy with the people you're with, you're fucked. Right. You know, <laughs> right. Uh, luckily, there was one guy on the boat I, I, I really got along with. He was, uh, we called him Christian. He had left France when he was 18, he'd gotten drafted and he didn't want to go in the army and he'd gotten in his car and he'd driven East through all of Europe and then down through the middle East and across Northern Africa. And he'd ended up in Morocco and, uh, he, he was a good sailor and there's a lot of people sailing the Mediterranean who need help, you know? And so he started working on people's boats and he ended up sailing across the Atlantic. And he was in the Caribbean for years, and then he was uh, in Brazil, and he, and then he ended up in Panama. And I don't know what happened, uh, but you know he was a fugitive, and you know we, we didn't even know his real name. Huh. And he, for some reason, you know, might have been woman trouble or whatever. He had to leave Panama, and he was on our boat. And, and he was he was such a cool guy. He'd stay up all night making croissants. And and he was, he had these drinks this Brazilian drink that I'd never heard of back then called caipirinha.
0: Caipirinha, yeah, yeah. yeah now for now sure, it's yeah. known,
1: you know. But back then it was like we didn't know about this Caxaca. exotic stuff. And, and so he'd make those every night, and you know he was a partyer. He was great. How did you how did you meet him down there? Was he? he Roger met him somehow because you know he was he knew he knew how to sail. And so he knew if he wanted to travel, all he had to do was go to the yacht harbor and find some captain who needed a hand. Captains are always needing help. If you know how to sail, you can go anywhere in the world uh, in a boat. Uh, So he was on the boat. And then there was this other guy, this ham radio operator, kind of an ex-military guy. We were just ferrying him to the Galapagos. But Christian came all the way to LA with us, and we kind of snuck him into the country. Oh, that's wild. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> sailed into la we sailed into uh, catalina we spent a couple days there and then when we sailed into la uh we just went to this yacht club and like three days later roger said oh i have to go to customs and so we we left christian at the yacht club and we, roger went to customs and they said okay did you bring anything no did you bring anybody no okay signed off There's no coast guards like patrolling the seas back then it just kind of i don't think they patrol every boat every day you know i mean uh we just sailed in you know i mean we 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 sailed into catalina and there's like people going back and forth to catalina all the time so they wouldn't know that we actually came
0: from you know uh, other countries i guess that was before the the cocaine empires were being built later on oh no so there was cocaine everywhere yeah okay. all right yeah for all i know roger had a bunch of cocaine on the boat you know i, I don't know i don't know Fugitive from Panama, gets a ride on your boat, take him to California, land in L.A. Uh, yeah, well, he was a fugitive from France. He'd already been on,
1: on the lam. Sounds like a guy that plays it safe. He was co- he was the coolest guy I've ever met. Women loved him, too. Like, everywhere he went... Uh, the French accent? The French accent, and he was just a cool guy, you know? And handsome and, uh, you know... Uh, he had whatever it takes. I don't have it. <laughs> you did all right for yourself. Uh, yeah, yeah. In the
0: long run, I've done really well. But, you know. It sounds like an interesting guy. Yeah. After the trip happened, was it, in your mind, was it like just a fun trip or was there any kind of life changes that you took based on the trip? Oh,
1: oh, that trip completely changed my life because I, I learned that I love sailing. And I learned that I just love water. I love the ocean. I love being on water. I already knew that I was a, I was a scuba diver from 14 and, uh, I did a huge amount of scuba diving in San Diego. Uh, and so I knew I loved the water and the ocean. And, uh, but I thought, Ooh, I, I, I didn't love hanging out with Roger. He was not, not a partier and he was pretty serious all the time. And he, he'd go to bed, you know, like as soon as the sun went down. And he said, no, you, you're not allowed to fish because we always had, we were fishing on this boat, you know, and it was really exciting whenever we go through a school of fish, all three, all three poles, would get hooked. You know, we'd all grab a pole and, pull like and fish. Uh, so we ate really good on the boat. And, uh, but he made us stop fishing at night and, uh, he was just a little too serious. And, um, so I thought, I want to, I want to get my own boat. And so I figured, okay, I'm going to need 250,000 to buy a really good boat, a swan. And then I'm going to need another 250,000 to travel around the world. And, uh, I didn't have any money at all or job prospects. Uh, and so, you know, I didn't really know how I was going to get half a million bucks, uh, and this is 1980 money which is probably like $6 million now oh, or for sure. $10 That's, million it's or a <laughs> yeah. It's a boatload of money. It's a boatload.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> when we got back to San Francisco, we parked at the, uh, oh, God, the St. Francis Yacht Club. Oh, yeah. Right down in the arena. Is. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So we Roger got a He knew somebody who had a slip there that wasn't using it. So, and uh, there was a guy with a race boat right next to us. We made friends with him. And then we started doing racing in San Francisco Bay. And there was a his, the guy who took care of his boat, I can't think of his name, but he was, he was a cool little guy from New Caledonia. And I hung out with him quite a bit and we lived on the boat. I lived on the boat and then I, I got a girlfriend in Berkeley. And so I moved to Berkeley and, uh, but I, I didn't, I didn't know what to do with my life and I did have a little hashish business. So I, uh, I would get like, I don't, I can't remember an ounce of hashish and cut it up into like 28 grams and, and I would sell it to people I knew. And, uh, it was just something to do and it kept me in hashish and my girlfriend that I was living with was studying endocrinology at UC and she had a project of where she she was studying the oh what's it called uh the circadian rhythms and so she had these rats and she would have to take blood out of the rats cut off the end of the tail and get blood out of these rats every four hours every four hours yes and so i was living with her so we'd wake up at four in the morning and we'd go to the lab and and cut the ends off the rat's tails and squeeze a little blood out and. I would help her and then I would stop helping her and I'd go use the triple beam scales. They had these really good scales. This was before electronic scales, but they were still good scales in this lab. And so I'd weigh out all my hash on the scales. (laughs) I knew you had another motive. (laughs) (laughs) And And then I had to go to San Francisco one day and it was 75 cents to get across the Bay Bridge. And I realized, oh, I don't have any money. And I had to go to San Francisco to make money selling the hash, but I didn't have 75 cents and I had my truck. So, and I had my little box of bubble trumpets, bubble O's they were called. And I thought, okay, I knew when I got these like two years ago or something, three years ago, I knew one day I'm going to try selling these things.
0: And I realized today's the day voice came down and told you you're going to sell bubble trumpets? Or well, when the... I
1: had this this box of 100 bubble trumpets, I thought it was a great thing. It's like nobody would seen bubbles like that. It was fantastic and I love them. And so I thought, yeah, you know, I mean, I have no job prospects, but you know, I probably could sell these things and make a little money. And so I went out in, in Berkeley right near the university. There's Telegraph Avenue. and And like artisans, usually like very hippie kind of people had been out there for years selling jewelry and pottery and macrame and all this handmade stuff. And so I just thought, okay, I'll go out there. I didn't have a license. You're supposed to have a license to Didn't have one. And I found this, this five and dime store about a block from the university that had, uh, these plate glass windows and a little kind of inlet where the wind didn't blow. And so I could stand in this right near the entrance to the store in this kind of inlet between all these plate glass windows and blow bubbles about, you know, like basketball size or even bigger. And I had my box of a hundred bubble trumpets and I started blowing bubbles. Everybody loved them. The people was like, wow, that's fantastic. I've never seen anything like that. And they go, well here, try one, you know, and then we'd have two people or 10 people all blowing bubbles and then they'd buy them. And I'd end up, you know, I get two bucks and then, and I, and it was like I was having a great time blowing bubbles. And next thing I knew, I had a hundred bucks. And I'd sold fifty of my hundred bubble trumpets. And I was like, I got a hundred bucks. And these are adults. Yeah, adults and adults with their kids and just almost everybody that came by because they were already looking at stuff. It was like a little public market. And uh and I had something nobody'd ever seen. And and they were fun. And you could get you could like If somebody started blowing a bubble, I could attach my trumpet to theirs and then breathe in a little bit and break the wall. And then we both blow in the same bubble. And so, you know, I'd start getting two or three people all blowing into one bubble and it was a happening. And I had studied happenings in college, you know, for, I had an art teacher who invented happenings. And so I was like, Hey, this is a happening. And, and I was making money and I was having fun. And so the next day I went to Sausalito to where the ferry boat empties out. And I stood in front of a hotel out of the wind there and, and I was blowing bubbles, nothing happened. And then the ferry boat stopped and like 300 people walked by and I sold the other 50 and I had another hundred bucks. And I was like, I'm keeping the hash. I'm not going to sell this hash. I took my girlfriend out. We had a big dinner and, and so that's how the whole thing started. She said, I'm going to go back and keep selling more. Then I was like, oh, this is an incredible thing, you know? And so I called the guy back at Dartmouth, my roommate, and he wouldn't talk to me. He was like, oh, a bad connection. He hung up the phone and, and he, he just refused to talk to me. And so I remembered that he was selling these, he was selling them back there. And when he would run out, he'd call his mom and he was at Dartmouth on an Indian scholarship, but. He, he was one sixteenth Indian. He was tall, blue eyed, blonde haired Irish kid, but he, he, he was one sixteenth is all you have to be. And you qualify for an Indian scholarship. And so his mom was a teacher on the Indian reservation up in Northern California on the Hoopa reservation. And so I called his mom and I said, Hey, you know, like whenever James runs out of these bubble trumpets, you send him more. Uh, and he invented them and she said, oh, he didn't invent them. I found out that there some toy company had made these and gone out of business. It's funny, we're sitting in a, what used to be a military uh, base and there's another ex-military base, Hunter's Point, in San Francisco. Sure, right across the water. Yeah, and Hunter's Point, back then, this is 1980, uh, had been decommissioned and so businesses were moving into Hunter's Point at that point and... There was a big article about a guy, I can't remember his name or what he invented, but he invented a toy. It was like a yo-yo that came back up on itself, the yo-ball. And he started a toy company and he was operating out of Hunter's Point. And my mom said, Hey, look, there's an article about a toy company in Hunter's Point. And so I called the toy company and I talked to somebody there and he called me back a couple of days later. He said, yeah, I found the company. I was looking through the catalog of the toy industry. And so I found the toy company and I, I found one of the guys and he had 40,000 of these toys and they'd all gone bankrupt. They'd all lost their shirts on this thing. They didn't know the toy business. And so they, they'd all invested 25, six guys invested 25,000 bucks in 1977. So they had 150,000, $1977. And they'd built a huge mold. They'd spent 25,000 on the mold and it made six bubble trumpets every minute. And the mold was sitting in a cow pasture, in paradise, California, and 40,000 bubble trumpets were in a barn covered with hay in Fort Bragg, California, up the coast. So I drove up there and I bought a thousand for like 15 cents each. And I went down to Berkeley, and I would go out on the street and blow bubbles and sell them. And you just showed up and said, hey, I want to buy a bunch of them. I called the guy, you know, and I said, hey, can I buy some of these? Yeah, I don't know what to do with them. They're taking up room in my barn. And they were upstairs on the top floor of the barn, covered with hay, all these boxes. And so, you know, I, I bought. I stacked up. I had the little Toyota truck, and I just stacked them up as high as they would go until the springs of the truck were, like, going the wrong way, and... I drove all the way, couldn't see out the rearview window. And I drove all the way back down to the Bay area and I started selling the toys. I didn't, you know, when the police came by, they would like tell me to leave because I didn't have a license. So I put all my toys back in the box, walk around the block, come back and start blowing bubbles again. And, uh, I did that, you know, for a couple of years, I just kept going, buying another thousand going out on the street. And I was paying fifteen cents and selling them for two dollars each, and you know I end up with hundreds of dollar bills in my pocket every day. Pretty good
0: markup. Yeah, you know, and that was mostly I was having fun. It's a fifteen x return. That's that's almost venture capital territory. That's like uh, it's quite a startup you had there.
1: (laughs) Well, what what ended up happening after I sold a few thousand, I decided okay I'm going to just buy the whole company, and so i the six original guys they they'd gone bankrupt they'd just written it off and they figured they'd never get anything they they'd made a tv commercial and tried to sell this thing but they just didn't know what they were doing they were lumber guys the guy in fort bragg was a fishing boat he sold fishing boats the other five guys were
0: lumber men and the whole lumber business had kind of died what why do you think they failed at, at selling do you think it was uh, personality they, or?
1: Yeah, i mean they were really good at lumber They knew that industry, but they were a bunch of like kind of people from out in the sticks, this hippie named Forrest Stardust Smith had invented this thing and he'd gotten a patent and he'd sold it to these guys. He'd sold the rights to make the toy. He licensed the rights to make the toy to these guys. And they, they'd all invested a bunch of money and they'd created this company. But Forrest, Stardust Smith, then went and tried to license it to Procter & Gamble. Because it back then, Dawn dish soap was way better than it is now. And it was like the perfect stuff. You just mixed a little bit of Dawn with some water and you can make incredible bubbles. Under these people, without telling them, he tried to double-cross them. And they found out about it and they sued him. And they ended up with full rights they ended up owning the patent Procter and Gamble or no uh, this toy company and I bought it from
0: them you just approached them and
1: yeah I mean I'd made a bunch of money selling them on the street and my dad loaned me like ten thousand and I said okay uh, I'll pay you fifteen thousand for the whole company the rights to the toy the mold and they said sure you know and I said okay and I'll I'll pay you over a year and uh, the one guy In Fort Bragg, he said, I don't want to sell. I want to be your partner. And I had to go up there a lot and kind of hold his hand. And uh, eventually he said, Okay, okay, I'll just sell to you. But I want all my money now. And so, you know, it was small money. You know, it was a couple thousand that I had to pay each one of these guys. And so I paid him his. And then I I heard of this guy who did tricks with bubbles. And he was going to do a show at the Exploratorium in San Francisco. The reason I heard of him is that he was on the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. He's on the Tonight Show. Yeah. He had learned how to make like a cube out of bubbles and do all these tricks with bubbles and he did kind of a little comedy sketch along with it and Johnny loved it. And the, he was got on the Tonight Show and he started the whole bubble thing. And uh and I think he was on there a few times and then he got on similar talk shows all over the place, all over Europe and and he He, he's a legend. He's still around. He lives in Santa Cruz, still performs. In fact, he still does the exact same show that he did back then, 40 plus years ago. Today. He does it, the same show. And he's proud of it. He says, that's vaudeville. That's what you do. You create a show and you just keep doing it, you know? And he, he thinks his jokes are funny every time he tells them. And I learned, I learned from him because I, I tell the same jokes too, all And I always think they're funny. So, uh, so anyway, I saw him. Then I went to the Exploratorium and I saw him do a show and I thought, well, I got to learn how to do those tricks. And it took me a long time, but it was fascinating. I was living in the haight Ashbury at the time in a beautiful old Victorian house and I I by then I'd gotten the toys into a few stores and I'd learned how to get sales reps. And so I got in a sales rep and then I was like shipping toys And I'd gotten some like packaging equipment and I was making blister packs in my basement. And, you know, I was starting to ship toys and, you know, the UPS would come by my basement every day and I'd sell, you know, ship off more. And uh, and then I got sales reps around the country and I went to the toy show in New York and I got reps back there. So you're distributing everything out of the basement of your house. Yeah. And I rented a a room next door, Uh, the guy next door. uh, He was really in on the ground floor of the tech boom. He'd worked for Intel and he'd been one of the guys, one of the team that invented the digital watch. I don't know if Intel made the first one or if he did it on his own, but he made a bunch of money from that. And uh, he had then realized that the tech world was so far advanced and the stuff they were doing was was so, you know, advanced. And yet the rest of the world, the society was not advanced at all. And, you know, there's people were at each other's throats left and right. And so he decided to form a company uh to teach people how to work together better. Interrel, he called it. And he was he was a really cool guy, Boyd Watkins. To teach people how to work together yeah, better. Like internal relations, Interrel. There was a thing in the bay area called the new games foundation and it came out of the whole hippie movement it was i think it was started by uh oh man what's the guy's name the earth catalog guy uh, uh i can't think of his name he was my neighbor on the houseboats uh, stuart brand stuart brand started this thing called the new games foundation because he realized that sports were all competitive you know and it's like he was coming from a place of people working together and not competing against each other. And he thought, why can't we come up with sports where people work together? And he, there's a great book, uh, the new games book, and it has like 20 games that they came up with. The most popular one was earth ball. And it was like a big bouncy ball, but like we're super big, like, you know, 12 feet across and people would just bounce it around. You know, it was called an earth ball. It's kind of got a
0: hippie vibe to it. Oh, very
1: hippie. So I rented a room in his house. I had my office there and I had my business downstairs. Uh, But then I started learning all these tricks. And then I thought to myself, okay, you know, I've learned how to make a bubble cube and a little, the carousel bubble and some other bubbles inside of bubbles. And, uh, and so I went, I was at a music, I was at a concert at a little club in Mill Valley called the Sweetwater. There's still a Sweetwater there but it's not the original Sweetwater. the original sweet water was a super cool place and uh and i saw wavy gravy in there and i knew who he was you know and so i ran out to my car and i got my bubble trumpet and
0: my bubbles and i said wavy you got to see these tricks wavy is the he was the mc for woodstock yeah, right? yeah yeah
1: well i mean i saw him in there and i thought oh i got to show him some bubble tricks and i went ran out to my car and i got the got the trumpet and i showed him the cube and the and the carousel and he said oh you should come to camp and teach the kids and camp what camp and he said camp win a rainbow and he has this uh circus and performing arts camp for kids up in mendocino county and i was like okay and so i went up to camp and i every morning i would teach a couple classes in bubble blowing and but there were a lot of other performing artists like lots of jugglers and musicians and and uh you know, every, all kinds of circus and performing arts. And so I started learning, unicycling you know, cycling and stilt walking and uh, and it was heaven. It, you know, it was like the kids all lived in teepees and they had 500 acres up there and there was a, a great lake to go swimming and it was fantastic. And I made a lot of friends and every night there's a show cause it's a performing arts camp and they have a nice outdoor stage with good lighting and sound. And I played harmonica, so they got me on stage It was the first time I've ever been on stage and they have a whole wardrobe department, so I got, you know, like a smoking jacket and a beret and some sunglasses and I got my harmonica and I got on stage and it was magic. You know, it's like the audience, of course, it's a great audience. We're all like there to support each other. And so I, I played my harmonica on the song and they loved it. And I, I, I got the bug. I was like, Ooh, I want to be on stage this. There's something exhilarating. And then you know, I just felt all warm and fuzzy. And so they said, Hey, you know, all these bubble tricks. They were all performing artists around the Bay Area. They said you could do kids birthday parties. And there used to be a little newspaper, uh, for parents, the parents press, and you could put an ad in there for 15 bucks a month. And I put an ad, you know, bubble parties. Nobody'd ever heard of a bubble party. No, I nobody'd ever done a bubble party. it was new, and so I got really popular really fast. And I was pretty soon I was doing five birthday parties every weekend. So I'd run the toy company during the week, and by then I, you know, I that was '83. I had like three toys, and uh, I had some helpers helping me doing all the packaging and everything, and. I was packaging up Bubble Solution. I had a whole crew of people that were bottling Bubble solutions, And, uh, but then on the weekends, I started doing shows.
0: All from getting kind of in the circulation with the parents' press.
1: Yeah. It was a, a monthly little newspaper, you know, that was distributed in, in little boxes and in stores, any, like, children's clothing stores. And, you know, it was filled with advertisements for companies that were trying to sell things to people who had little kids. So schools, it was, you know, it was a, a regular paper.
0: There was no internet, you know, this is how information got spread around. So you've got this bubble trumpet and now you've got kind of like a, like, almost like a road show going on where you're performing with your own tool, is that? Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, then of
1: course I was also selling toys. So I said, hey, I have the party favors too. So they would hire me to do the show and then they would buy a bunch of the bubble toys and uh you know i i i kept i kept saying you know as a joke if i just baked c- the cake i'd be the complete package the complete birthday <laughs> party the entertainment and the party favors and the cake wow. and uh so i was it was fun and i was getting paid you know and i I was driving everywhere in the Bay Area. I went to every community. I went to really poor people. I went to really rich people. I went to uh, Hell's Angels parties and black motorcycle club parties. Motorcycle right.
0: clubs hired you to do a bubble show? Or was... For their kids. They have kids. Oh, for their kids. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That makes Everybody sense. Everybody
1: has kids, you know? It's like all different strata of society. And I would go to their houses. I'd go to, like, all these immigrants who, uh, and, like, Computer people were already. There was a guy named Kosla, really rich, famous guy, owns big companies. He had me a bunch of times.
0: They own a venture capital fund.
1: I, I perform. I I got I, I performed for uh, the Sultan of Brunei. He would rent the top four, stories of the Mark Hopkins Hotel every year, and he had kids. And I, you know, I, I got. And then uh, like all these high society people started hiring me to do their shows and. So I'd do things at the Fairmont, and uh, there was a like the kind of head of society in San Francisco, Charlotte Mayard. Uh, she hired me, or her, whoever she hired to hire people, hired me, and, and uh, I did a show for Robin Williams, who actually owned a house a few blocks from my parents' house in Seacliff. Did a couple shows at Robin Williams' house, met him. Uh, I put him in a bubble, actually, because, you know, I learned all that, all the Tom Naughty tricks from the guy who was on The Tonight Show, but then I, I, like, learned how to put people inside of bubbles. And as far as I know, nobody was doing that. You know, I was the first person I know that did it. Maybe other people did it, but uh, I just basically got a hula hoop and put a handle on it and got a kiddie wading pool and filled it with bubble solution and had the kids stand in a little tray in the middle of the bubble solution and, and put this hoop up, you know? It didn't... It, it the building the solution i had to learn how to make the solution so that you know that took some effort and work but you know then the big bubbles then i you know started making other toys and i got patents on other toys and you started with
0: dawn dish soap though right
1: yeah you could then you could buy this uh, bubble solution it was called wonder bubbles and they later named it mr bubbles it was made in chicago by the strombecker company and it was really good stuff and so i would take a gallon of that and then squirt a whole bunch of dawn into it and then a bunch of glycerin and i'd mix it all up in a bucket and that was my solution and it was really really good stuff where where do you find glycerin is that you could buy it from a chemical chemical company and it's used in a lot of uh consumer products um it's a moisturizer it's also like back then there were a lot of companies that made uh cakes packaged cake mix and it's in there too because it's a it it's what makes cakes so moisture you know and it's in a lot of skin lotions because glycerin is hydroscopic it pulls water in so if you fill a glass with glycerin to
0: the very brim and leave it out the next day it'll be overflowing is that just trial and error that you figured out you needed to put glycerin in or did there
1: no it was kind of hippies knew this for some reason you know, it's like, th- that was a secret ingredient, glycerin. And I just put as many boxes of Dawn dish soap on there as I could, you know, and I was, could barely push the thing through the Costco. And then, you know, I, I would hire people to squirt Dawn and a tiny bit of glycerin into these little one ounce bottles. And, uh, I hired this guy who was a trombone player. I can't remember his name. And i would just drop off the bottles and the dawn and the glycerin and the labels and the caps and then you know i'd come back the next week and i'd have thousands and thousands of little bottles of of this stuff super soap and uh he eventually said hey i got this great gig in italy i'm not going to do your bottling anymore but i made a machine and he didn't tell me he'd made this little bottling machine it was like all this, is a whole wooden frame and all these wooden parts with wheels and things, and then this manifold with uh, all, you know, all these air pressure things that you, you could put all the bottles in this tray and then just push a button and it would fill eight bottles. Like, zoop, and then push the tray another inch, zoop, 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 and you'd fill like 800 bottles
0: in in 15 minutes. Were you were you paying him by the bottle? or was I it... was paying him by the bottle. Oh, so he, yeah. he had incentive he was, to, he okay, I He was an entrepreneur, he was, a, he was a brilliant guy.
1: And, uh, you know, a bit of a mechanic. And so I bought the machine. Actually, I think he gave me the machine because he was just done with the project. And then I hired, uh, the guy who lived next door, he, he had this Cambodian refugee guy that helped him make all these electronic machines that he was using, uh, Sampien Sinarath. And so I hired Sampien to do my bottling. And then pretty soon I had a whole crew of Cambodians that would come at night twice a week. And, and bottle bubbles for me. And they brought all this. No, they weren't Cambodians. They were Laotians. And they brought all this Laotian food and they'd feed me. And it's like all this sticky rice and these little sausages and incredibly spicy hot sauce. They were great people. Such warm, lovely people. I, I really, I miss them.
0: That's really fascinating.
1: Yeah. It wasn't high tech, that's for sure. There was I didn't have a computer or anything. Everything was kept in little you know, little log books and stuff. And every time I shipped something, I'd type out an invoice and mail it. And, you know, and then, you know, they'd have a little book like who owes money and when they get the checks and go to the bank with the checks.
0: Hardware is one of the hardest uh, startups to have in the Bay Area. So to all the, the hardware people out there, uh, take take a lesson.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, there were great systems to do all that stuff back then. Oh, so, many,
0: so many incredible things are gone now. How'd you come across the Laotian, uh, help? Did you, did you actively seek them out or was there? No, kind of
1: no, a... uh, the guy next door, Boyd Watkins, who was making these electronic gizmos to train people to work together, he needed help to create and make all these electronic gizmos. Like he had this one thing, I forget what he called it. It was, it was a really great thing. It was a carpet and there were all these squares on the carpet, like one foot square. Minefield, it was called. And so, you know, you'd have two teams, one on either side of this carpet and people would step on a square. And if it didn't make a buzzer go off, they would then step into a square in the next row. And if they got, if a buzzer went off, they blew up, the mine went off. So the person behind them had to remember where to step. And it was a training device to teach people to pay attention and work together. And communicate with each other where to step on this carpet and listen to each other. And so he had a whole bunch of these games. And so he needed someone to help him do all the wiring because there was all this, you know, buzzers and electric things. And so Sampien was working next door for Boyd. And so I said, Hey, Sampien, you're only working for Boyd one night a week. Can you help me on another night of the week? And then pretty soon, Sampien had a whole crew
0: of people, you know. And that, so I. Sampien so, so was also a bit of an entrepreneur then yeah. himself. Yeah. I see. Okay. Yeah. So it was a good time.
1: It was, that was a really good time. And and I was living in the, in the hate, in, you know, a couple blocks from a, a really good uh, comedy uh, nightclub, the Other Cafe. And so, you know, like all the comedians at the time, it was a big, time for comedy in San Francisco back then Paula Poundstone and and uh uh oh god who's the guy I just mentioned I did uh, I went to his house <laughs> Robin Williams uh you know Dana Carvey and uh you know there were some big names and they would all come to the other cafe you know and I it was it was great I was having a good time back then